Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Welcome back to the Crystal Night Show brought to you by Newsweek. This week's guest is Lauren Belor, and she's the Associate Director of State and Local Policy for Prosperity Now. In today's conversation, we will tackle housing insecurity, younger Americans, urban residents, those with lower incomes are more likely or have been more likely to express concern about the availability of housing. We are seeing home ownership rates for African Americans trend lower today than they were when segregation was actually legal. That's a stunning statistic, and that's a stunning reality that many Americans, hundreds of thousands of Americans, have to face as they look towards this American dream. Getting a house, owning a house, has been something that has been put into the American fabric of our society. You grow up, you go to school, you get a job, and you buy a house. But what if you can't afford a house? This week, I'm talking all about inclusionary zoning with Lauren Belor of Prosperity Now. She is the Associate Director of State and Local Policy. Welcome to the show, Lauren. Thank you so much, Crystal, for having me. Delighted to be here today. Absolutely. And, you know, Lauren, just for folks who might be listening and say, what is Prosperity Now? Can you just open up and share with us what the organization is? Obviously, we're going to be discussing inclusionary zoning, but if you can just give our listeners a little bit of background, that would be really helpful. Absolutely. So Prosperity Now um, is somewhat of a a think tank organization, um, definitely centered around uh, economic policy and equity um, in order to help to close the racial wealth gap. So we do that through um, driving uh, economic opportunity, building equitable economic power and creating impactful system change. And through specifically through our policy team, um, we do that through addressing policy around baby bonds, um, taxation, um, also financial security, housing, et cetera. Um, so very well-rounded aspect of things that can impact um, how we address closing the racial wealth gap and tools to do so. Got it. Got it. What organizations have you partnered with to share this message, to continue to having, you know, having this conversation around what our elected officials can be doing to help, you know, amplify, not only amplify the message, but actually create lasting legislation that would impact it in the, in a positive way. So what, what ways are, or are you suggesting that organizations can use this or this um, information in this report? to continue pushing this message? So there's a couple of ways that that can happen. Um, and we have had the pleasure thus far relative to the report to present it at our prosperity summit that had over 1,500 attendees of our partners. Um, too many to name, so I don't want to leave anyone out. <laughs> but um, also, too, 
Uh, we have our network building theme that consists of a lot of our community champions that we presented the report and shared with as well. One way that they can, that many partner organizations can use uh, the report as a tool um, is especially organizations that lean on more of the grassroots side because we recognize that we're a national organization. It's a different set of circumstances and it's really important that grassroots or community organizations have the tools they need. Um, it can be used um, relative to addressing um, housing ordinances on the local level. So two different ways. Um, it could be combined with um, housing vouchers for low-income families um, or even formerly incarcerated individuals, or it could also um, be used as a tool um, to request funding. Um, and the reason I bring that up is many organizations, especially with the ARPA dollars that are currently out there, um, are seeking to have and use and find more innovative ways to use funding. And this could be a potential way to do that if it's an organization that prioritizes housing. Um, there's also a tool that could be used for um, making sure that appropriation dollars come in to the right cities. Mm -hmm. uh, with there now being, uh, again, those four M states, uh, Michigan, Maryland, Massachusetts, and Minnesota, I just don't want to take that lightly. I know that I keep harping on that, but a trifecta is really, really, really amazing um, when it comes to state level legislation, especially in states that have had um, less de democratic control um, mm -hmm. or more partisan um, issues, and also in states that have had election deniers, et cetera. Um, it's so important that uh, appropriation committees, which um, just for a breakdown tend to um, be in charge of funding that funnels down into the municipal level, um, have the dollars to be able to lean in that direction um, for uh, county and city level um, issues and mandates. And that's one way that that can happen is through appropriation committees. and. In addition to um, there being it possibly being used as a lobbying tool, I mean, I would I'm always going to encourage organizations to find different ways to lobby their issues and using a report that has stats and research um, and analysis is a definite way to get a legislator's attention in regards to advocating around certain issues, especially relative to housing. Another thing I just want to make sure, again, not mm -hmm. to be long-winded, but just want to make sure that I touch on is the Dillon rule versus home rule. And that's something that I really would want listeners to know about because it's not something that's talked about a lot relative to housing. Okay. Um, so in some states, uh, state-enabled legislation may be needed before local jurisdictions can adopt an inclusionary zoning ordinance. And so this prerequisite um, is particularly important in states that actively enforce the Dillon rule, um, where there may be failure to adopt enabling legislation to result in local inclusionary zoning policies. And so there's states with Dillon rule and then there's states with the home rule. 
Um, and basically, to make this a long story short, um, the Dillon rule um, can give certain, it, Dillon rule versus home rule can allow for certain um, localities to challenge um, their states. So Dillon rule states assume that municipalities are allowed only the powers that are explicitly granted them by the state legislature. Do you um, have an example of some states that have the Dillon rule just so folks yeah. can, you know, really begin to place where these things are? And if, and if this is a tool that they can use, it would be helpful if they knew that it was available in their respective state. Absolutely. So there's 29 states that either have Dillon rule or a Dillon rule home rule combo. Mm -hmm. Um and you know, just continue on how they use it, but that includes Michigan, Wisconsin, Minnesota, Maryland. So it uh, includes the trifecta states, actually. Mm -hmm. um, it includes Vermont, Maine, New Hampshire, New York, Pennsylvania, Virginia, West Virginia, North Carolina, Georgia, Mississippi, Texas. It's really important to note the southern states, by the way, mm -hmm. um, because I don't think a lot of people, even when I did research on, I was like, wow, like southern states have that. Um, Arkansas, Oklahoma, Missouri, Nebraska, South Dakota, North Dakota, Wyoming, Idaho, Nevada, Arizona, um, and Washington. Okay. And so those are states that use Dillon rule or the Dillon home rule combo. Mm -hmm. um, the Dillon rule that applies to only certain local governments are California, Colorado, Kansas, Illinois, Indiana, Tennessee, Louisiana. Alabama. And the reason why it's important to note this is because let's say Colorado, for instance, which is a state I've worked with many times around um, doing some anti-preemption work coming off of, and granted, this is not necessarily, well, the only place on housing, it would be like manufactured housing um, or as people call it, mobile homes. Mm -hmm. um, but relative to the anti-preemption conversation, um, this came up a lot around COVID-19 because there were a lot of eviction moratoriums and then now they're not. So, um, you know, that deals with the conversation around rent stabilization. And so it's important to know because with Colorado, there's been ongoing battles around anti-preemption, um, which would you know, give states control over rent stabilization rather than local ordinances control over that. And that's Got probably it. because Dillon rule applies to only certain local governments. All right. So just to recap that that last piece around the Dillon rule and the home rule, can you just share with listeners in like maybe, you know, a one or two sentence how they can use these rules to advocate for more inclusionary zoning or more inclusionary practices? when it comes to just zoning in their respective states? Yes. So a great example in a national housing uh, coalition. Um, and maybe even tie in, I'm sorry to interrupt, but maybe even tie in development because zoning is not just about housing. It's also about development, you know, projects that are coming to a respective city or community. So that might be helpful as well for folks to hear. Absolutely. So the, I'm going to use this example that the National Housing Conference gives great resource, by the way, on um, 
some of the critiques around inclusionary zoning and diving more into Dylan home rule, just as a plug. But one example that is amazing um, is the challenge to a local authority's institution of an inclusionary housing program um, in a 2009 case. So this was Palmer, Sixth Street Properties versus City of Los Angeles. Um, also, the case is just known as Palmer. But there's a developer, Geoff Palmer, that challenged the City of Los Angeles requirement to either replace any low-income units that were demolished in the course of his development or to pay a per unit in lieu fee of $96,200. So the argument against the requirement was that it violated the Costa-Hawkins Act, which was a state law that limits the ability of local governments to control the initial rates of new construction. Um, and the California, the California Court of Appeal found in favor of Palmer and ruled that the requirements placed on Palmer did indeed violate his right to set the initial rents on the units he built. And the case has definitely had repercussions for um, local jurisdictions throughout the state and led to many of them suspending their inclusionary zoning rental programs. So that's actually great to use as an example. It's not it's because it shows the actual challenge of mm -hmm. dealing with that. Um, and the legislation that would have superseded the Palmer decision and allow occlusionary housing policies wasn't passed until 2013, um, but then was vetoed by the governor. So there's a couple of things in this. One, it shows gubernatorial power because at the time it was vetoed. Um, it passed in the legislature in 2013 and it would have superseded uh, Palmer's decision. But unfortunately, the legislation wasn't there. And this is exactly why we're pushing that policymakers be held accountable and use this tool more than ever because inclusionary zoning only works as far as the legislation surrounding it. So had there, let's just say that we were fast forward to 2022 and there we have the governor and using the same exact situation with California and had the governor they have now same legislature, it would have passed, then Palmer would have never had a decision. They would have had to mandate and enact um, and replace their low-income units to make them afford to keep them affordable mm -hmm. because they already had affordable units, but at any time a developer can decide to rise the cost. Um, and so it would have held accountability had they had the right legislators in place and the right legislation in place. Got it. Okay. Um, well, what are what are three takeaways from your report? Just to kind of, you know, wrap up our conversation today. What are three takeaways from your report that you think listeners should, you know, understand, walk away with and go back and read more in depth on? So although we include um, takeaways in the report uh, of good models of inclusionary zoning practices, which is great. I'd rather give um, some different takeaways based on um, the entire the report in its entirety. One is that um, inclusionary zoning is only going to work as good as the policymaker legislating around it and the voice of the people being at the forefront. Both have to go in tandem, and that's just something across politics in general that continues to need to happen is that policymakers and advocates need to bridge the gap. 
And I'm hoping that's one takeaway. Mm -hmm. Takeaway number two would be um, the history of certain communities. And one community that was included in the report was um, Jamaica Queen. And that one was kind of special because I actually was watching a documentary that Nas executive produced called Supreme. It was about Supreme Team, a notorious group that came out of Jamaica Queen. But what I found in the documentary really was the beauty of what Jamaica Queens used to be. And it was before a lot of the destruction and white flight that took place. And so I think that's really important to um, help change the narrative around certain communities that just really are a result of divestment rather than investment. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh really give a new narrative to those that tend to um be critical of certain more urban communities that they really just don't understand the history of and then i would say number three would be um the third takeaway would be really getting an understanding of why there are so many um barriers to entry for not only affordable housing, but um, closing the racial wealth gap and really having a key understanding of the how did we get here? Um, that would be the third takeaway because all of those things are a necessity to backing up the research and analysis that are included. Okay. Well, thank you. That's um, that's helpful for you to kind of recap, you know, just what the report was discussing and you know how listeners can zero in on it and identify things that are helpful um, for them not only as they're advocating if they're in the advocacy space but also how they can hold elected officials accountable for the type of policies that they're creating around zoning and how it could affect either their personal lived life experience or a business a future business um, transaction that could happen that involves zoning. Um, so I just wanted to say thank you for, for being with us today and for sharing this message with listeners. And would you share briefly how folks can find out about the, the about the report, the, your website um, and how they can just be in touch if they have questions about this? Absolutely. So you're more than welcome to visit our website, prosperitynow.org. Um, prosperity just as spelled now.org and we include um, not only the report but more information of things we talked about the FAQs around baby bonds um, and other aspects of economic policy um, the report is downloadable so you can download directly on the website um, it also includes a connection to myself and my colleague Alejandra Montoya Boyer, who also worked on that, as well as um, we do acknowledge our intern Anikit, who helped to lead on this work. Um, and it has our contact information um, for myself. It's just lblor at prosperitynow.org. Always feel free to reach out. We That's literally our job to make sure you have the resources and tools. So we'd be happy to share any resources, tools, um, for legislators and our policymakers, as well as advocates, as well as a general audience or public interest um, in this, because uh, quite frankly, the I mean, this affects everyone relative. The housing conversation is affects anyone, even those that don't do the work. So um, 
more than happy to share that information. Um, it also, our website has all of our social media. Um, and if people want to contact me directly, more than happy to go to um, my personal website as well. Um, it's just firstandlastname.com. So anything that's needed, happy to be there for anyone. All right. Well, thank you so much, Lauren Belore from Prosperity Now. Thank you for stopping by, chatting with us and sharing more about what your organization does in this important report. Thank you again so much for having me. I hope you enjoyed this episode of The Crystal Night Show brought to you by Newsweek. The best way you can support us is to give your five-star review on Apple iTunes and be sure to check out our diverse lineup of over 12 different podcasts and radio programs at newsweek.com forward slash podcast. I'm Crystal Knight. Thank you for listening and be sure to subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcast to The Crystal Knight Show.